Our bodies do more than house our organs. They carry our genetic makeup, they grow and develop through decades of change, and they figure prominently in that mysterious complex of emotions, perceptions, and insights we call identity. Our bodies provide a template for personal expression and for decorative enhancements, and they can bounce back from grievous assaults and degradations. But what if we don't feel comfortable in our own skins? Tonight, expert guests from a diverse range of specialties will examine how physical appearance affects the development of a personal sense of identity and what happens to our understanding of ourselves if our bodies are greatly changed by an injury or we suffer some sort of disfigurement. We'll discuss the long history of body decoration, both temporary and permanent, from tattoos to body scarring, and the spiritual, religious, and cultural or group identification meanings behind the markings. And we'll learn about the radical improvements that can be made in a child's life and future prospects by medical intervention in cases of clubbed foot, cleft palate, and cleft lip. We'll consider the intense and intricate relationship between one's body and one's sexual and gender identity. And we'll learn about the range of restorative and aesthetic corrections that can be made through plastic surgery. So it's a big, big topic, and we'll get right to it. Uh, here to help us get a handle on the mysterious relationship between our physical selves and our identities is Minakshi Gigi Durham, a professor in the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication, and she has a joint appointment in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. So thank you so much, Gigi, for coming here to be with us tonight. Thanks for having me, Joan. Absolutely. So you've been researching and writing about identity and the politics of the body for a long, long time. So how does physical appearance develop affect the development of our sense of self-identity, self-worth? Yeah, this is a big topic, as you said. Um, so, um, and you'll, you'll have people on the show who can speak, you know, sort of more specifically to the philosophical origins of all of these kinds of um, ideas. But, but in Western culture in particular, I would say for at least 400 years, we've been sort of um, challenging the original sort of Cartesian notion that the self is separated from the body, right? That the, that the you know, the thinking mind is, you know, a higher entity and not connected with the physical body, which is just an impediment. Um, you know, to intellectual thought. And that's not at all the way that actually the body is construed, especially in the media, the contemporary media environment. Um, so what we see now is a real connection of the body with the self and with identity. Um, and so, and you know, really this is not surprising in a sense because people are read through their bodies, you know, in a, in a very visually oriented culture. Um, the, the body appearance, skin color, um, you know, markers of gender, all of these kinds of things play into the way um, people are categorized um, and slotted into social places. Um, so I actually brought a prop with me, and I know it's radio, so I'll describe it, but for anyone who's watching it on TV, I've got a self magazine here, and I think this is absolutely indicative of the ways in which the self is tied to the body, because, you know, the name of the publication is self, which speaks to some sort of concept of an inner self or an identity, but every single thing on it, even visually, it's completely yoked to a specific type of body. And in the text, every single piece of the text is about the body. So it's got five-minute abs and lose weight for good and, oh goodness, exactly how Kelly Osborne lost 70 pounds, clear skin, amazing hair, and so on. So not only is the self connected with the body, but is connected with a very specific type of body and a mediated ideal of the body that defines the self. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you work in journalism, mass mm -hmm. communications. Um, 
you wrote a book a few years ago called The Lolita Effect, yeah. which I think many people have read, have heard about. Uh, for those who have not, tell us a little bit about what you call The Lolita Effect. Yeah, so uh, actually I, I should give you a little bit of a backstory on The Lolita Effect before I get to it. Um, the way I started thinking about the, the whole concept of the things are the concepts of the things I write about in the Lolita effect began with um, a concern I had about sexual violence against women, and I wanted to think about whether the mass media played any sort of role in 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 that whole phenomenon, which is you know a terrible epidemic in the United States and elsewhere. So I started looking at mediated representations of women's um, gender and sexuality in the mass media, and I looked particularly at women's fashion and beauty magazines, and that was really interesting because I conducted really formal analyses of how you know, female sexuality was being portrayed in magazines like Cosmopolitan and Glamour and so on, you know, which really do focus on women's sexuality. And what I found was really disheartening because even though there's a whole rhetoric of empowerment and fun, fearless females and a great deal of sort of pleasure that's implied, um, really the constructions of sexuality are very regressive, very stereotypical, um, and very sort of confining where sexuality is linked to, again, specific types of bodies and um, this, uh, kinds of gender relationships that are always heterosexual and always in terms of women having to change their own bodies in order to please men sexually. And so, you know, they're not really progressive messages and they're not really focused on women's own pleasures and ideas of rights and responsibilities sexually. Mm -hmm. So those sort of, you know, so that was problematic. Um, and then when I was doing that work, it was right around the mid to late 1990s is when I started. Um, a spate of research came out that was looking at girls and adolescent girls. And so there were books like Reviving Ophelia, you might remember that, and Schoolgirls, and they were all indicating that right around adolescence, 13, 14 years of age, um, girls were undergoing really sort of traumatic developmental experiences, you know, drop in self-esteem, um, drop in um, body satisfaction, there was body dissatisfaction, their grades were slipping. Um, that was right around the time that they figured out that anorexia and other eating disorders start to appear. So there's this little spike in eating disorders. And so, again, I was curious about how um, the mass media were playing into that. So I began looking at um, teen magazines and at media targeted to adolescent girls. Um, so that work, and I, what I found there was even worse even than, almost than the adult magazines. So, um, so that work sort of sparked the Lolita effect, which in a way is... Um, you know, the culmination of many years of work looking at how the media represent girls and women's gender and sexuality. And the Lolita effect is specifically focused on girls. Um, so what I'm calling the Lolita effect is in fact five myths of female sexuality that circulate widely in the media. The first one is if you've got it, flaunt it. So that's sort of a two-part conditional thing, which is that the first part of being sexual is to you know, display as much of your body as possible, which is a sort of really simplistic way to think about something as complex as sexuality. But the second part of that is if you've got it. And what that means is if you've got a specific type of body, the body of a sex goddess, which usually translates into a Barbie body, you know, the kind of body that you see on every magazine cover, the type of body that you see in every movie, music video, website, everything, um, which is a totally unrealistic body, mm -hmm. extremely thin, but at the same time very voluptuous. It's a right. body not found in nature. Right. It's a body that requires borderline starvation and plastic surgery to achieve, you know, because it has giant breasts and a very thin waist. I mean, there have been some medical analyses that translated the body pro Barbie proportions into um, yeah. real, you know, real life statistics. And I can't remember them exactly, but it's something like if she were a real woman, Barbie would be five foot 10 inches tall, would weigh 100 pounds, 
would have 38-inch breasts and 32-inch hips. You know, basically she'd be too thin to stand up straight. I mean, she'd be so top-heavy, she'd fall right over. And so, you know, and, but that's the body that's held up as the ideal, and that's the body that's used to define the self, so that women, right. women's whole identity, their self-worth, everything in the media is tied to that body. Mm -hmm. And it's not only an unrealistic body, it's a computer-generated body. Right. So. right, 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 and a graphically enhanced body when it comes exactly. out. You know. Exactly. Um, but women buy into it. Girls they, buy into it. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and I, I've seen, it's been interesting, I'm sure many people are aware of a recent campaign by Dove, the, the yeah. soap. An interesting campaign, I think, mm -hmm. to show still, I think, a somewhat restricted range of body types, but women of various colors, right. various ages, various body types, yeah. and trying to show that there's beauty in everyone. A little bit and more, I, think yeah. that's, I think that's an interesting thing to do. What, how do you feel that addresses anything we've been talking about? Well, I feel like it may be a small step forward at any rate. Yeah. You know, there's still, it's still tied to consumerism, but yeah. you know, at least it's, it's you know, representing a broader range, a more diverse range of bodies mm -hmm. than we generally see mm -hmm. um, as you know, coded as beautiful. So there's something progressive about that. Yeah. Of course, Dove, um, the company that owns Dove Unilever also owns SlimFast, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, is, is there, so, so this Lolita effect I'm interpreting as, as relating perhaps to young girls, adolescent girls. Is there something similar that happens to, to men at some point in their lives where, I think an awful lot of women at various point in their, points in their lives, and particularly in adolescence, are comparing themselves to everything else they see out there and to their friends yeah. and kids are dieting earlier and earlier yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, does something like that happen to, to mm. young men? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer this in two parts. The first is, um, yes, girls do um, subscribe to these kinds of body ideals because I did field work with adolescent girls because I actually wanted to see how girls were negotiating these kinds of messages. How were they navigating them? And I was hoping to find sort of more resistance that I ended up finding. I did field work in middle schools and you know, they're all intensely engaged with the media and they really are impacted by these body ideals. And so many of them are um, undergoing excessive dieting and exercise. And also, you know, they do have a lot of body dissatisfaction. Many of them do. Not all of them, but many of them. So, yeah, so there are real problems there. Now, do boys experience the same thing? Um, when you look at it statistically, I mean, still 90% of all eating disorders are experienced by girls and women, right? So, I mean, men are, don't have the same rates. You know, most plastic surgeries, cosmetic plastic surgeries are undergone by girls and women. The rates are rising for men. Um, this is not exactly a step forward. You know, this yeah. isn't really what we want to see. Um, so, increasingly, we're seeing more sort of idealized images of, of, masculine, of masculine bodies as well. And these are equally impossible bodies. They're very thin and very muscular. And, again, they take, you know, really extreme measures to achieve. Um, but at the same time, most of the research also indicates that there are other role models for boys and men too. You know, you, you also see people like Bill Gates and, you know, Warren Buffett, people like that who are not actually, you know, don't inhabit ideal bodies and are still extremely success, successful. We don't see that as much for, you know, as women, yeah. and for women in the media. So. Well, I think if you think in terms of um, politics, it's, uh, I think there, there may be, different levels of appreciation for varied appearances by women yeah. than, than would be the case with men. Yeah. Why do you think it is um, so easy to disregard your own uniqueness, um, to not think of your uniqueness, your particular face, your particular shape as being something you should be proud of it comes from your, you know, all of your antecedents have given you something of what you are right now. But it's so easy to dislike oneself yeah. and to hold oneself in a lower state in comparison to others. 
than, than to value that uniqueness. Why is that? I know, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I think part of the reason is that we live in a media-saturated environment, and the media is overwhelmingly filled with these you know, identical cookie-cutter uh, images of what the ideal female body is supposed to look like. There's very, very little variation. Even when you see a little bit of variation, say, in skin color, so-called diversity, yeah. it's the same yeah. body, right? Yeah. Beyonce, whatever. It's pretty much the same body, but you know, just in a different skin tone. So, so you don't really get a really broad range of um, I idealized bodies. And, and the media trade on that particular body because uh, it generates enormous consumerism, right? So it's not, it's not this is not sort of a culturally, necessarily a culturally valued body, although it's become one. But it's absolutely a body that's tied to selling products, selling cosmetics, because you need, you need endless products to try to achieve that body, which isn't <laughs> actually achievable in real life, because no amount of cosmetic surgery, exercise, spanks, you know, none of it is gonna work because all the bodies are digitally manipulated. So not even the models themselves look like that. So the whole image has to be that this body is potentially attainable through consumerism, but in fact can never be consumed, can never be attained. And so women are always in the state of, they're, the advertising and the media are trying to put women in the state of always desiring the body and always consuming in order to get it, but never quite getting there. So why are we so influenced by that, which was your initial question. Um, and that's a really interesting, you know, sort of phenomenon because at some level all women know that these bodies are unrealistic and all women know that they're digitally generated and they're, they're not real bodies. And yet at the same time, there's still a real yearning to try to achieve those bodies, right? So it's what in media studies we call a, a, a negotiated reading, you know, where you're critical but you're still sort of buying in. Um, and in part, there's huge cultural weight behind that, right? Because the, the, the spoils go to the victors in certain ways. There's so much, um, there's praise for those bodies. It's, it's the, the public discourse supports those kinds of bodies. Women with those bodies are rewarded financially, you know, supermodels, you know, rock pop stars. Those are the, the, you know, in general, those are the types of women who get financial rewards. Um, there's also research that shows that women who inhabit those bodies also tend to get hired more, promoted more, paid more. Um, so there's, there, there are actually material rewards for it. Um, and so it's very hard to challenge those cultures and look around and, and say, you know, there's beauty in diversity and there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's beauty in, you know, sort of a range of ethnic types and a range of body weights and that yeah. we, you know, what a world it would be if everybody was just mm -hmm. a cookie cutter Barbie doll. Mm -hmm. It would be horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can imagine that some of what we're talking about here would certainly be, I would think, similar in Western Europe as, as to what's happening here in America, in North America. Um, it, do you have a sense about other, other yeah. cultures, um, cultures that perhaps are not as media-saturated as, mm -hmm. as our own, although it's hard to know where it's those cultures to, are right. right now. Yeah, actually it's very hard to find a culture that's not as media-saturated mm -hmm. as, as ours anymore because mm -hmm. the media are global and transnational yeah. um, corporations are disseminating the same images everywhere sure. pretty much. You know, there sure. may be some small local variations, but there have been, again, very interesting studies of that too, where, for example, the bodies of Bollywood film stars have sh shifted to, uh, to um, emulate Western ideals more and more. And um, studies in Brazil that show that um, a, the body that was once valued in Brazil, which was a guitar-shaped body apparently with smaller breasts <laughs> and broader hips, mm -hmm. has now changed entirely mm -hmm. to the Western model of the large breasts and the small hips. So, mm -hmm. and plastic surgeries are, you know, the, yeah. are, you know, prevalent in 
in many South American countries. So, in fact, I think Venezuela is the plastic surgery, the mm -hmm. breast augmentation culture capital <laughs> of the world or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so these images have, you know, global reach. Um, there was a really interesting study that was done in Fiji in 1993 where there was, no, there was no Western television before that moment, but there was a group of Harvard anthropologists there when Western television was introduced and Baywatch was on TV. And until that happened, there had been no incidence of eating disorders among adolescent girls, and afterwards the incidence of eating disorders rose you know, dramatically. So that was a field experiment that showed a very direct impact. So, mm -hmm. so the images are reaching worldwide. Now, I know you have other people on the show, for example, Philip Lutgendorf, who can talk more about how in other non-Western cultures there have been different conceptions of the mind-body mm -hmm. connection or association and different you know, values for the body, where in certain Hindu traditions the body is just seen as illusion or maya. But, um, but increasingly, Western concepts of the body is defining the self, especially the female self, is reaching, you know, worldwide. Mm -hmm. Well, just be before we uh, break, could, could we reflect back a little bit, um, you know, a couple of thousand years, a thousand years and maybe more, to earlier models of, uh, at least in what we think of as Western civilization, models of female beauty, for example, and you, you look at the, you know, a beautiful Greek statue or whatever. I think it's not too, it's not too hard in modern times to look at those, uh, at those beautiful figures, maybe with different dimensions than the Barbie mm -hmm. dimensions we're talking about, but, but the kind of, the, the fine appearance of somebody who is thought to be you know, beautiful, say in a statue or in a painting. Mm -hmm. um, we have always, people have always appreciated mm -hmm. beauty. Mm -hmm. And even though we, we seem in, in our culture perhaps to be trying to smush it all down into one particular kind of beauty, beauty is something we've always searched for. Right, right, and but uh, it, it's important, I think, to recognize that beauty can come in a range of forms, and that that historically, in different cultures, different types of bodies and different sorts of beauty were valued and appreciated. That it wasn't all just one, yeah. you know, one type yeah. of beauty and one specifically Caucasian, I should add, yeah. model of beauty that's you know the the norm, the ideal in Western culture right now. Mm -hmm. um, because um, again, it's it, there's there have always been ideals of beauty, it's true. And a lot of them are actually, in Western culture, they've been linked with class. So if you look oh, back to the time sure. of Rubens, where very large yes. bodies, right? Yes. Women with very large bodies were considered beautiful. That yeah. was because um, you know, the, the general thought was they had enough money to be able to afford right. lots of food, and right. so they looked prosperous. Right. So right. what was admired then was sort of rolls of flesh that we might now call corpulent <laughs> or obese, but that was considered beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to look. I mean, that's actually what tells us that beauty is a cultural uh, standard rather than some sort of innate, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, attract, attraction. Mm. Um, well, if you, could, yeah. if you could change one thing mm -hmm. in the way, let's just leave it with young girls, in the way a young girl approaches her own appearance and um, uh, defining herself to herself, what would it be? If there was one thing, um, I, I think I, if I could do it, it would be to, to you know, recognize that there's so much beauty in, in a unique appearance and also to recognize that, to, I mean, I think we all need to recognize clearly that the way beauty is hierarchized in our society, again, there's a, there's a racial component to it as well, right? Where light skin and blonde hair, straight, long blonde hair and, you know, fine features and, you know, a slender body is privileged, which is a very Northern European sort of look. And, um, you know, larger body, darker skin, thicker lips, broader nose, 
frizzy hair, those things are not. Those things are at the bottom of the hierarchy. There's no natural reason for that. It's certainly a racialized sort of standard that's being imposed on society. So, um, so I think, you know, it would be wonderful if girls could recognize that and, and you know, sort of challenge it by, by valuing the beauty of diversity. Wow, well, what a great way to start. Thank you, uh, Meenakshi Gigi Durham. I'm so happy that you were here with us this afternoon. So appreciate it. Please Thanks, say thank Jim. you to our team. So I'll invite our next guests up now. Uh, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa, and I'm your host, Joan Kerr. In this next segment, we're going to discuss the history and the global presence of body markings and modifications. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our next guest. Sitting down just now is Diana Cates, professor and chair of the University of Iowa Department of Religious Studies. And next to her is Barbara Eckstein, professor in the University of Iowa Department of English. And coming up next to me is Philip Lutkendorf, professor in the University of Iowa Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures. And uh, earlier, uh, a couple of moments ago, Gigi referred to you, Philip, and said you might speak a little bit about some of the, the um, well, body markings, of course, in, um, in Indian um, cultures but also perceptions of beauty and, uh, and identity. Perhaps we'll just start with you and ask you to carry on. Sure. Um, although I was thinking, listening to her, that uh, you know, the Barbie body is not just a modern Western invention. I, one can make the argument that it's a male projection of you know, how women are supposed to look. But the, the women in Indian temple sculpture and the women in ancient Sanskrit poetry are um, somewhat more voluptuous, but uh, they have these very thin waists and very large breasts and very large hips, and it's a huge convention and um, equally unrealistic and, and uh, unattainable. Um, I was wanting to talk a little more about the kind of modeling that we do um, on the body, maybe not necessarily as, as drastic as uh, uh, anorexia and dieting and so on, but the kind... Um, the use of the body as a, um, a kind of a canvas, the facade that we present to the world and the way that we choose to project uh, things onto it. And that certainly has a very long tradition in India, uh, especially of using the head, the face, and the forehead as a, as a, a canvas, a marker, a signboard um, to be um, emblazoned with all kinds of significant markings. And uh, you know the use of various kinds of forehead markings Tilaks and tikas, bindis, the circular dots that some people wear, use of vermilion on the part of a woman's hair. Um, these are very old traditions uh, of marking the body to indicate different kinds of messages, different kinds of status. Um, and um, in, in many ways, it has to do with making the outside of your body conform to the inside, you know, to what you perceive yourself to be. And so the inner and the outer world being brought into conformity through some kind of significant uh, system of signage. Mm -hmm. And well, one of the things that's interesting about it, when we first started talking about this, Joan, you, know, you asked me about tattooing uh, in India. And there is tattooing. People uh, Nowadays, of course, it's becoming a craze from the West. But there were, was a small amount of tattooing also uh, for a long time. But not a great deal. It tended to be very small things. Somebody would have a, a mantra on their wrist, om, something to remind them you know, each day of a, a sacred message. 
Um, but one of the most significant things about the, the facial decoration that a lot of people in India practice is, is the very fact that it's not permanent. It has to be renewed every day. And in many cases, the renewal of it is itself a, a ritual act, it's a spiritual discipline, it's a, it's a self-remaking that you consciously do each morning. Uh, it takes a certain amount of time, sometimes it's accompanied by certain prayers and meditations, uh, and it's a, it's a way of inscribing your body uh, in a significant way, both as a reminder to yourself and also as a kind of signage to others. Do you see some of these things changing? You mentioned that tattoos mm. are becoming more predominant now with a, or more apparent, uh, at least with a, a younger generation. Yeah. But um, do you see any of the other traditional applications changing or losing their import? Uh, somewhat. I mean, uh, the, the, the forehead marking of, of a married woman, uh, a dot worn in the middle of the forehead, is now often just kind of cosmetic, and you can get stick-on ones, and they come in all different <laughs> colors to match your outfit. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, they don't necessarily have any particular meaning except as a kind of beauty uh, mark. Uh, henna, of course, uh, coloring of uh, brides' uh, hands and sometimes forearms uh, with henna at the time of marriage. It's very common, very popular, but it's also becoming very popular just as a kind of fashion statement. Girls will get together and have a henna party that isn't necessarily in connection with anybody getting married. They're just a bunch of friends will get together and hire a henna artist and get themselves hennaed. Yeah. And in some cases, guys will do it too. Mm -hmm. So th these, you know, there, there's ways that it mm -hmm. changes. Yeah, so, so um, perhaps you already said this, but is it mostly women in, in India who would, would do some kind of... Uh, not at all. No. Not the kind of forehead marks that I talked about are equally common with oh, men. Really? Yeah. The three lines for Shiva and uh -huh. U-shaped mark for uh, mm -hmm. devotees of Vishnu. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, as common among men as women, or perhaps even more among men. And do these sometimes denote class or caste? And uh, or not, not really. Usually. Uh -huh. Not usually. Although um, certain religious sects, by definition, are more upper caste, and therefore people are likely to be. That strata. Yeah. Diana and Barbara, I want to go to you now because actually it was the two of you who uh, suggested this topic, this whole business of body markings, uh, remaking the body, tattoos, connections with spirituality, and so on, uh, some months ago when we first talked about doing this program. And so I wonder if I could go to the two of you. Barbara, perhaps I'll turn to you first and, and uh, ask you how this idea even came into your consciousness. Well, it came into my consciousness from uh, Diana and, uh, and Philip and their colleague, Fred Smith, and others that I got together, gosh, I don't know, um, over a year ago, uh, because I was interested in what uh, these smart people would say about 21st century spiritualities. And when I got people together, I didn't imagine that the conversation would turn to body marking. I, I can't say it was what what I was thinking, but very quickly, they and uh, some other people in the community, people who are campus ministers, uh, were very animated by the, the significance of uh, current interest in tattooing and other kinds of body marking and, and its relationship to, uh, to, to histories, but also what it, what it says about, about this moment. So uh, just, just in there saying that, I, I find myself uh, transformed <laughs> in the way that I look at uh, my students and all, all manner of people in the community and how they've chosen to 
to, to decorate themselves mm -hmm. and what it might mean to them um, as, as commemoration, as, as marker of survival, as celebration, all, uh, just yeah. all, all manner of, of things. So, um, so I, I now see it as a, a manifestation of something I don't pretend to understand, but as a kind of, uh, in many instances, a kind of spirituality, which I'm you know, trying to get my mind around. Yeah. yeah, and I want to turn to you for a little more on, on the uh, spiritual nature of at least some of these uh, representations people put on themselves. Uh, Diana, uh, you teach in religious studies and... Uh, um, Give us some idea of how you feel about these, these kinds of presentations. Sure. Well, I don't think we're all clear about what spirituality is. And actually, it's not any one thing. It's just whatever we think it is. And different people of different historical periods have thought of it differently. But I like to think of it, at least for a lot of people, as um, kind of a search for meaning and belonging. Those are the two key things. And usually a search for meaning and belonging in relation to what you regard as ultimately real, or the highest or deepest reality, or that which is most important in the universe. So there's a tremendous import to this meaning and longing. But as I, uh, I, I have my own little story about <clears throat> after I met with Barbara, I went back to one of my classes and I asked them to do a little experiment which was to go to their friends and coworkers and uh, anyone who had a tattoo who they, which they thought might be religious or spiritual, ask them about it and see what it is that it means to them. Because tattoos mean whatever they mean to those people, not to uh, the people who are looking at them, really. But um, so a lot of them went immediately to people who had crosses or Bible verses or other traditional religious symbols. But a lot of them went to other tattoos that weren't manifestly religious or spiritual and just asked the person to describe why it is that they got that tattoo and what it means to them. And they went on and on about telling their story. And they told their story in a way that made that tattoo really like an invitation to somebody else to hear their story, to confirm the reality of that story. It uh, is some way, um, it, it allows a person to mark uh, very significant events in their lives and uh, kind of be forced to continually integrate those significant events into their unfolding story. And what's so interesting to me is that our selves and our stories are continually changing. They're continually in the process of being formed or performed. And I, I think that these tattoos are ways of communicating, but they're also ways that are always sort of dated and they're coming up short. But as long as somebody's asking us about our tattoos and we're able to tell our stories and they're able to kind of accept our stories as interesting or valuable, then that is a kind of affirmation that becomes possible. Um, so I guess what I, the reason why I think that's spiritual is because I think it's something like a narrative self-understanding that uh, we can reach that feels to some people like their ultimate reality. And uh, Philip had mentioned some of the temporary markings that, that people might apply in, in India. Tattoos are all but permanent. I guess you can remove some, some of them sometimes. But this is a very um, significant step you take in, in putting an ink tattoo on. 
your body, and as I think many of us know, throughout one's life, um, your partners may change. Um, things you once thought were very important to you may no longer be important. I, it's, I'm curious about, uh, I, I'm really interested in this thing you just said about integrating yourself into the story you've told on your body because our lives are all, you know, we change throughout our lives. And if you continue to tattoo important meanings onto your life, I suspect that would be a lifelong thing you would go through, right? <laughs> We're going to talk to Nicole Morford in a minute, and she has many tattoos, and, and uh, is going to talk to us a little bit about what they all mean to her. But um, other kinds of uh, processes that re remake uh, our physical selves, something we also talked about a little bit earlier, there are certain things people do to themselves physically that might be cultural, um, might represent status within a given culture. On uh, certain places, uh, people may have uh, scarring that is intentionally applied to indicate status. Um, can you talk about some of these other yeah. things? Well, status is one thing, but another aspect of that is belonging. Mm -hmm. So if you belong to a particular group or a particular tribe, or you uh, define yourself socially rather than individually. Mm -hmm. uh, so especially in older uh, historical periods and also in other places beyond the Western world, a lot of people do define themselves socially, so they might mark themselves in such a way that they indicate what their role in the community is, and that is their identity and their belonging. They find the truth of life in a relationship with other people. Um, so, yeah, uh, that continues to today. We see people in gangs and uh, people in prison and people in armed services. Uh, and you know, other folks who belong to important groups that they uh, want to indicate their belonging. I think you mentioned, Barbara, if I'm remembering correctly, that even some of the uh, Hawkeye uh, athletes have um, tattoos. Was it you who mentioned that in our earlier meeting, that there is, yeah? Well, uh, that, they, that yeah, they do. Uh, it's not something I, I know very much about, but, but clearly um, professional athletes, uh, college athletes have, mm -hmm. have taken to this um, uh, current interest in tattooing in a in a big way, uh, but I've not not interviewed them, so I don't I don't know what they think about it. I, I was thinking uh, as Diana was talking about uh, about prisoners that I do have some interaction with in the in Mary Cohen's prison choir, and many of those men are tattooed, and so one might think, uh, oh. Their lives have now transformed. They want to go on. They want to change. And here they are marked with some identification of some past group. And wouldn't they want to be separate from that? And uh, I, I don't know. But but um, as I as I interact with those men, I I have a feeling that those markers become, in some ways, uh, for them maybe not so different than having a, a verse of one of the psalms. On your, on your the inside of your arm to remind you of of uh, some connection you 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 wish to to uh, keep track of that that um, as these men have transformed on the inside the meaning of these of these tattoos has transformed with them I think I, I don't think it's a matter of removing them in order for them to go on mm -hmm. but it is a kind of a it's it's an interesting um, sort of social process we're going through. Um, as a society, when we'll, you know, we read articles about um, a given employee who is told to wear long sleeve 
uh, long sleeves because you're not allowed to show your tattoos. I've read about this in regard to police officers in certain areas. Um, uh, you know, the question of whether uh, if your tattoo shows, perhaps it's on your neck, would you be hired for certain public positions or positions of responsibility? And I think these things are going to be worked out over time and, and perhaps are very easily accepted in some places and not accepted at all in others. And so it's a very big step, it seems to me, to permanently mark oneself. And because if you can remove them at all, it's a difficult and laborious process. So, so what do you think it is that, that would uh, inspire someone to, to, I'm old enough and, and just kind of uh, ordinary enough that I've never gotten a tattoo, and, and I don't suspect I will before I die. So it, it's, it's something I, I, I don't know what would inspire somebody to make that kind of per, you know, permanent statement. Um, I have no problem with it, but it's, it's not, it doesn't, it's, I can't connect with it really. So what do you think? Well, I think it has partly to do with pain. It's extremely painful from what I hear to get a tattoo. And so there's a way in which, first of all, if you undergo something so painful in a communal relationship where other people see you doing that or they see the results of that, there's a way in which you prove your courage and audacity. Um, and there's also, I think, for a lot of people, a real a physical reaction to undergoing that kind of pain. The body has a kind of response mechanism to that... Um, causing of pain that uh, brings a kind of relief to the body in order to address the injury that uh, a lot of people find psychologically very stimulating. So you do sometimes hear about people being addicted mm -hmm. to the process. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing to get uh, back to what I was saying earlier, I think part of the point of marking parts of your life, like it used to be that we had these uh, rites of passage. And in Western culture, we've lost almost all of those. And so it's almost like people are creating their own rites of passage. And rites of passage have always been painful and scary. You know? So it's as if, at that moment, you register reality on a deeper level than you otherwise would, because it, it's painful. You don't forget that. Mm -hmm. you know? And um, plus, it signals your commitment to something in that event. So I have a lot of friends who have tattoos of uh, grandparents and uh, other people that they love. So it's interesting that you would, on the one hand, cause yourself pain in order to remember someone you love. But in a sense, I think a lot of people don't feel like their everyday reality is substantive or real. It's almost as if they have to you know, cause a kind of pain uh, change in their body in order to feel that those things have really happened and they're really important and they always will be going forward. There's no getting away from it now. Uh, people I know who uh, have had tattoos after they've survived a, a serious illness and the way that uh, illness can uh, give one uh, a sense that, that, the, that one's own body has become one's enemy uh, and uh, I, I, I don't think I want to try to fully uh, suggest I can parse the meaning of this, but it, it does seem to me that uh, it, it, it's a way of, of um, reconnecting uh, with, uh, with this vessel that one's uh, living in and, and a part of, and, and um, 
that there's something particularly in that instance of the, the um, permanence of a tattoo that seems to me particularly poignant when I've known people who've, who've done this. It's, it's a way of saying um, to your body, you, you and I are in this to the end yeah. <laughs> together. Uh, and and uh, here, I, I mark this, that we're, we're in this together, that my consciousness is choosing you here. Reminds me of just uh, the, the way of asserting your agency when you mark your own body. When I first started looking at this, I was uh, curious why people, uh, especially uh, African American males, who had in their historic and uh, religious tradition a memory of being marked by someone else, of being branded like cattle. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, <clears throat> and also in talking with them, and it has partly to do with taking something that is, uh, was done to you and in relation, you meaning your ancestors, and in relation to which you were completely passive and saying, I'm not going to be a victim anymore. I'm going to do it. It's like I'm going to do it to myself to undo my sense of vulnerability and powerlessness from the past and take charge of it. I think that has something right. to do with it too. Right, right, right. Well, and in an email exchange we had, had earlier, uh, you suggested that as you looked back throughout history, basically peoples all over the world, all throughout history, have had various forms of, yeah, of marking. Absolutely. Yeah. Sort of getting at before, a lot of people in modern Western culture are relatively individualistic, so their tattoos are going to express that. And um, a lot of people are materialistic, meaning uh, they don't believe that there's anything beyond the world of the five senses. So they're going to try to find the meaning in their lives, in their stories, and their love for people, and so on. But in other, many other cultures and throughout time, people have believed that there are actually multiple dimensions of reality, multiple worlds, and that there were spirits and ancestors and gods and so on in these different levels of reality. And part of the way they used their body marking was to um, uh, sometimes indicate devotion to uh, one of those gods or uh, spirits, but also sometimes as like a magical charm, so that if there were spirits who could convey magical power and you were to put that on your uh, skin, that somehow you'd be able to carry that magical power with you. And um, others, I, I've heard stories uh, from various cultures about people believing that if you didn't have a particular tattoo on you, an insignia that signified your belonging to that community, that the gods would not recognize you and would turn you away. So there's a sense in which something that seems so tangible and material actually has this significance in that it can link you up with other worlds. Yeah. Any concluding remarks you'd like to make, Barbara? Well, I, thinking about Nicole's coming up next, I, I wanted to mention that uh, in, in um, moving down this road of, of tattooing, that one of the things that a friend uh, pointed out to me is that a couple of years ago in the New York Times, there was a series of uh, really extraordinary photographs of um, yoga practitioners, very advanced yoga practitioners, <laughs> I have to say, who had really, uh, really lovely and ornate uh, tattoos, and so they were photographed in various um, yoga positions, traditional but difficult positions, with these tattoos then 
being extensions of the body in pretty extraordinary ways, not just as I would lay my hand on my leg, or, but, uh, but a, a, an interaction of the body and this, and this art on the body in a way that I hope Nicole can illuminate. But I uh, would uh, recommend to people that they look at these photographs from the New York Times in 2011. Thank you. Wow. So Diana Cates and Barbara Eckstein, thank you so much for being with us. And Philip Leckendorf, thanks for being here. I'm sorry you had to leave so soon. But, but thank you very much. Thank and you. We'll see you soon. So as you know, this is World Canvas from International Programs. I'm Joan Kerr. And uh, if you'd like to hear this program later online, you'll find all the information you need at uh, international.uiowa.edu and click World Canvas. So joining me now is yoga practitioner and teacher Nicole Morford. And I want to say thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, so, so uh, I hope you don't feel like a guinea pig here, but we have specifically invited you to talk sure. to us both about yoga, your, your long, uh, intense work with yoga, but also the tattoos that are so lovely and so soft and, and uh, what they mean to sure. you. Yeah. So first of all, can you tell me, you are a registered yoga teacher at the 200-hour level and a Thai yoga therapist. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, um, as a yoga teacher, we, there's not really a big governing body that kind of regulates yoga instructors, and Yoga Alliance is about the closest that that comes. And so when you get a certification, you go to a Yoga Alliance registered school, and therefore you receive a very particular certification that allows you to register at the 200-hour level is what, what I have. Yeah. Um, and as a Thai yoga therapist, that's actually something that I just incorporated into my practice. Um, I'm certified to do this Thai yoga therapy, which is this manual, hands-on healing modality that you basically take someone through a flow, through a vinyasa, um, with them being completely passive. And you draw energetic lines on the body and create this healing experience for them. So. Wow. Really fascinating stuff. Great, great. And are you here in the Iowa City area? Yeah, I, yeah. I work in Iowa City and Coralville North uh -huh. Liberty is where I live, so I'm, I'm kind of all over the place making it work. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so take us back. When did you get interested in yoga and when did you decide you wanted to get some tattoos? Oh, yeah. Um, oddly enough, and now that you pointed out this is the first time I've made the connection, I think the two happened right around the same time. Uh, it must have been probably my junior year in college. I went to school here at the University for Dance, mm -hmm. and um, it was a great way. Everybody was doing it. It was trendy. It was something to kind of keep your body stretched out and fit as you kind of continued your studies. Um, and so I tried hot yoga first, you know, because that's what everybody does first. Mm -hmm. um, and it just kind of, it, it, I stuck with it for a little while, but it didn't really dig into kind of that philosophical, spiritual level that I wanted to explore. Um, so I decided there was a local uh, training happening, and I was like, I'm just going to sign up. I'm going to do it and see what happens. Um, and that was probably a couple of years after that um, that I decided to get my certification. And oddly enough, my junior year in college was when I got my first tattoo as well. Um, and, you know, I don't know what really kind of drove that decision. I, I just had this kind of desire to create something visible that marked who I am. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm kind of a fearless person. I, I mean, you know, I try to live my life in a way that expresses my unique individuality and that doesn't apologize for that. And so I knew that if I was going to get something, um, you know, the beautiful thing about sitting down in the tattoo chair is you have this opportunity where 
you have no idea, I mean, you have a concept. You have some idea of where it's headed, but you don't really know how it's going to pan out. You don't know how it's going to feel. You're just willing and open to the experience. And I think there's something really powerful about that in saying, I'm having faith. I'm giving this person full permission to mark my body permanently for life in a way that can never be changed, and I'll accept whatever that comes to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what spurred that, yeah. Well, so did you develop a relationship with the person who would be doing this art on you before you just walked in the door and, and said, I, I'm here for my 2 o'clock appointment? Well, my husband actually got a tattoo from someone in town first, and so he had a good experience, and I thought, okay, well, I'll just give it a try. And, you know, when you get a, a larger piece, there's a consultation, there, there's yeah. give and take, there's artistic process involved. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I felt comfortable enough with this person that I decided to give it a go. Uh, Ultimately, in fact, every tattoo on my body, minus just this little one behind my ear, is is done by a female, female artist, um, which was something really important to me, um, Mm -hmm. just to kind of have that connection and that comfort level and and kind of understanding. Um, And so I eventually kind of went through a few different artists and, and landed with the woman that I see now who we connect on many levels, and she just... She gets what I what I mean and when what I want, and she makes things come to life. So yeah. So uh, can you describe a few of the tattoos? Or sure. Show, show them to us if, yeah, you, if um, you don't mind. I you know I was hoping for an eighty degree day and like you could check out everything I have going on, but I will I will roll this off here so you can take a look. This is my this is a sleeve that I'm trying not to move the microphone here. This is a sleeve that I really just finished at the end of last year. Um, all done at once. So this is all one artist, one piece, as opposed to pieced together mm-hmm. over you know, different, different pieces. So this has one significant meaning, which is the mechanical world merging with the natural world. Um, and so I basically went to Audrey, Audrey Corrine, mid-Erin Inc. I'll give her a little plug. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. Um, and I just said, I'm looking for something that kind of exemplifies this process I've had of coming into my own, being who I am, allowing myself to be natural and alive and thrive in that as opposed to this kind of mechanical, kind of some of these things that Gigi talked about in terms of just being a woman and the things that you have to do, you know, to kind of present in a certain way to be accepted. And so this is kind of the merging of those two things. And I just said, here are the elements I want. I gave her a few. I said, this is the concept. And she did this, she drew on my skin freehand and then took ink to, or took needle to skin. And over many, many hours, this is what we But all done one day? It was all done? No, no, no. I I mean, the longest I sat for at a time was probably two days in a row of like 10 hour days. So, I mean, that didn't, that didn't cover even, Mm. even a portion of it. I mean, it's, it's a long process. So, yeah. They're incredibly beautiful, really, Thank really you. beautiful. I mean, soft colors, and is, is there ever a day, forgive this stupid question, mm-hmm. but is there ever a day where you, you want to wear a certain thing and you think, oh, if just for today I didn't, or is this such a part of you, it's like having, it's like your arm or your eye. This is a part of you, yeah. and it's never a consideration for fashion or anything else, what goes with it or what doesn't go with it. This is just you. Yeah, and you know, sometimes the opposite. Sometimes I think, oh, gosh, I really want to wear something that like shows that mm-hmm. thing that I have. And um, someone was asking me beforehand, um, just, you know, if I wake up and, and some days I'm like, whoa, whoa, is that me? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, it, you know, maybe the first couple of tattoos I got, I mm-hmm. had that kind of feeling with it. But 
as I continue to get tattoos, and as was mentioned, I, I definitely believe this will be a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just integrates so quickly. And, and when you really believe in what you're going to get, then there, there's no separation mm -hmm. in identity, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. Would you imagine that, that um, you said this would be a lifelong process and you expect to get more tattoos. Do you think you would ever come to your face? Would you ever come up to your neck? I have, I have a tattoo on the back of my neck and I do have a little, little tattoo back here behind my ear, but I don't think I would I don't. I like mm -hmm. my face as it is. I'm going to leave my face as is. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed. You yeah. know, the thing is, I, I don't. I don't typically plan these things out. I come to my artist with, here's what I've. Here's the crap I've been dealing with, and how can I find a way to make that, really, something I use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so yeah, I. I who yeah. knows really is the answer, but I yeah. don't think so. No, that's fantastic. So. Um, hmm. If you were to, 30 years from now, mm -hmm. going through whatever someone goes through in the next 30 years, having children, becoming, uh, I don't know, maybe a grandmother somewhere along the way, do you think that you will continue? It's kind of a, a weird question sure. because you That's seem fine. so centered and so sure of who you are, and so I'm sure you'll always be that way. But many of us go through sort of lots of different versions of ourselves. Yeah. And you look back at a photograph of yourself 25 years ago and you think, oh my God, I can't believe I ever wore that or I shouldn't, certainly I didn't ever right. look like that. So there are things we go through that make us sort of feel somewhat different at different points in our lives. Sure. Can you imagine that there might be a time where you'd think, hmm, I'm, I'm over that? You know, some of the tattoos I have I like better than others. Some that I have I think, oh, that was, you know, that little thing right there could have looked different or could have meant something more, but in the end, the moment that you have that experience and when it's on you, it's a part of you for life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if I end up thinking, oh, that little flower, I don't really like that. You know, mm -hmm. I don't like the way it looks mm -hmm. or, you know, it's, it's not who I am. I, I, don't, I don't think that could be possible. I, I just think mm -hmm. it's a part of me and it's a part of my past. If, mm -hmm. if I come to a day where I stop getting tattoos, mm -hmm. I can look back and say, wow, I got through these experiences in my life and this is how I use them for a positive, in a, in a positive way. Mm -hmm. So. And the important thing for you, I gather, is that this is for you. This isn't absolutely. This isn't for anybody else. This isn't to belong to a group. This isn't to um, gain someone else's approval or understanding. This is really a statement of who you are, what what you want yourself to look like and feel like. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think. Um, you know, and a lot of people do just go to a tattoo shop and there's something called flash on the wall and it's just on the wall and, you know, three girls in this town might have the very exact same tattoo that they got at the exact same place at different times. Yeah. And that, there's value in that and mm -hmm. I'm sure there's meaning to them with mm -hmm. that, but every tattoo I have is custom and, and everything I have is, I'm very conceptual and visceral, I'm not incredibly intellectual, mm -hmm. I, I'm guided by intuition and so, when I have something that I want to share, I kind of conjure up all these words and emotions and things, and then mm -hmm. something beautiful is created from that, as yeah. opposed to, I'm going to fit this mold, I'm mm -hmm. going to get this thing. It's, mm -hmm. this really is like what's been on my skin all along, but now I'm illuminating it. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, so uh, any concluding thoughts about um, the connection between your yoga life, your yoga, ex yoga experience, and the, and the tattooing? Sure, there's one thing I did want to talk about, which is, the process of tattooing, and it was touched on a little bit um, in the last segment, and that this ability to sit down in the chair, to not know what's going to happen, to know that you're going to experience excruciating pain for endless hours, and you're not <laughs> sure when it's going to end, um, 
there's this thing we talk about in yoga, witness consciousness, this, this ability to take a step back, to recognize thoughts, to recognize emotions, to recognize the physical body with curiosity but without investment or without attaching. And when I sit down in that chair, it's, it's, it's a 12-hour-long meditation. It's an opportunity to lean into the discomfort, to lean into all of these emotions that, and you know, a lot of my tattoos are emotional and that stuff rises to the surface and it's like that stuff rises up to the skin and then there's this pressure against it and there's this merging of those two that's really powerful. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Nicole yeah, Morford. Real pleasure me. to meet you, yes, to have you to here. You Please say thank you. Thank Great. You. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, so, our next guests are joining us now, and uh, this is Royal Canvas, as you know, from international programs. I'd like to invite you to the next program we're going to have here, which will be on Thursday night, a different night of the week, June 13th, and that program is on a global look at interpersonal psychotherapy. It'll just be a one-hour show from 6 to 7, and I hope that uh, many of you can join us for that. Um, joining me right now are Tom Cook, uh, just here, and Deb Kakmarinsky. Uh, we're going to take a, a bit of a turn now in the program and discuss the personal, familial, and societal impact of untreated birth defects and the remarkable corrections that can be made, particularly to young patients, resulting in a truly transformative impact on these patients' lives. And Dr. Deb Kakmarinsky is Clinical Assistant Professor in Pediatric Otolaryngology here at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And Dr. Tom Cook is a professor in the UI College of Public Health and also Chief of Operations in Ponsetti International. So, pleasure to have you both here. And, uh, and Deb, I think I'd like to start with you a little bit. And, uh, you work with patients and parents who are dealing with some very difficult uh, birth defects. Uh, their children arrive with uh, cleft palate and cleft lip. And um, I think we should just ask you first to describe what these uh, problems are, and then we'll go into how you can fix them. Great. Uh, cleft lip is a birth defect where the uh, lip is all the way up into the nose. It does not seal the side portion of the face as it forms in mama's womb, um, doesn't uh, seal to the middle portion. And so it can be incomplete, only partway up the lip. It can, can be complete up into the nose, fully connected. The floor of the nose is the roof of the mouth, so that's a complete gap between those two. And it can be one side or both sides. The cleft lip tends to come along with the cleft of the gum line or the alveolus, and then the teeth are affected. And then a cleft palate is the roof of the mouth. So there's the back, the soft roof of the mouth, and the uvula that hangs down on the back splits into two. And then in the front where the hard palate is, it goes up in the nasal cavity. So you can have uh, all sorts of forms of this. They sometimes come together, and sometimes the cleft uh, lip or palate can come alone. Mm -hmm. And so what kinds of difficulties does a baby born with this uh, birth defect encounter? The cleft lip and nose, um, I think the most sort of obvious initial problem that you have is a visual problem, as we've been talking about the body appearance, that um, the babies look different. The lining of the inside of the mouth and nose, that kind of skin extends out and around onto the outside. And um, for me, uh, at this point, these are beautiful babies. I think for a lot of people that aren't familiar and working with them, there's a bit of a shock. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, I think, has affected that early social experience of having a baby. You take a newborn to the grocery store and you're a rock star. Mm -hmm. And I think these parents end up with sort of a blanket over the baby, not really uh, inviting the public response to 
somebody that looks different. The gum line can affect the dentition and the teeth. You can have more or fewer teeth. Braces are more complicated. Sometimes dental implants are needed. And then the roof of the mouth has several other clinical problems that it drives. You have to have the roof of the mouth intact to be able to speak properly. So there's a few sounds that we make that full flow through the nose is needed, M, N, and N, G. That's very little of our speech. Many, many, many of the sounds that we make to communicate clearly, you need to have that ability to close off the nasal airflow to make. And so children who are born with a cleft palate that's open, really in their conversation are hardly understandable to those who aren't typically around them without a lot of speech therapy and typically with surgery. So communication is difficult. Things like extra ear infections can come and um, difficulties with feeding. So this is clearly, as a birth defect, it, it happens all over the world and some countries with pretty advanced medical care. Give us a picture of, of what a visit with a, a parent might be like when they've just had this baby born and they're having their first consultation. What, what do you hope to accomplish with the parent and the child? In this um, time frame, in our sort of medical system, many babies with cleft lip are found with prenatal ultrasound. Not always. Cleft palate is difficult to find and typically isn't known. Um, and so if a child comes in with no knowledge ahead of time, then many parents will have some feeding difficulties right away at the beginning. Mm. And so special types of bottles um, are used, and those are sort of available around the United States in hospitals. Most hospitals are ready to help with counseling, but it can be fairly disappointing mm -hmm. for families who are preparing to nurse their babies, that they suddenly need to use a bottle. The sucking can be impossible with a cleft palate. And so um, basically flowing the milk right into baby's um, throat is needed. And so there's some initial feeding difficulties. There can be some initial visual difficulties. But I think a lot of parents have a lot of fear. This idea of uh, outside appearance of not formed properly. Oh my, what else is wrong? Will this child be able to meet the hopes and dreams that I had for them? And that's one of the messages that I think is important to have. Um, you're going to be coming, we'll be giving you a care, we'll walk this out with you, but the hopes and dreams that you had for your child before, you should still have. Because there is no, uh, uh, there should be no assumption that there's any kind of limited mental capacity or any other kind of difficulty the child would have. That is a fascinating question that some of our research here, uh, Pegnopolis and others, we have wonderful genetics and cleft uh, research uh, teams here, and some of those questions are getting answered. There isn't a clear, um, well-known understanding of that. I would say that parents can hope for normal um, uh, function, um, but there may be some subtle findings that we're learning about different learning challenges that we can assist with, with various kinds of um, therapy and optimizing education that come along. Those um, are probably things to find out a little bit more in the coming years. Sure. And in terms of pure appearance, is it one corrective surgery? Are there numbers of surgeries that might need to happen in order to bring that the appearance as, to as close as what we would call normal as possible? That's a very uh, different in different institutions. Uh, the practice is a bit like art around the world. At our institution, we tend to have one repair for the cleft lip and nose, about four to six months of age. Many people elect to do a final lip, nose, revision, mm -hmm. rhinoplasty, tuning things up for symmetry when they're done growing and the final braces are off. Mm -hmm. So for the lip, nose, always one, sometimes a second. Yeah. Well, before we go to Tom, tell us how you got started in this area. 
I think um, I'm second career coming back to medicine, and one of the reasons that I came back to medicine from a career in engineering was the desire to directly help uh, people and make a big impact in kids. And so part of my dream to ever even come back to training was to be able to go around the world and make a big hit, um, an impact that would change a life. And I had taken some mission trips, and I felt not really contributed greatly. Um, to people that were less privileged, born in a different place. I was born here in Iowa. There's amazing care here. Wonderful people happen to have a baby with this kind of problem in a place that they can't get it fixed. And so it was very meaningful to me to make a very practical impact. And so it really did drive my whole um, kind of vision and passion to come. I took a little bit of a non-traditional path, fell in love with a lot of uh, other things that I can do in pediatric laryngology with ear surgery and sinus surgery and um, head and neck uh, surgery, and so um, I think I love working with children, and I love the fact that as we work with children um, with this sort of problem, we can take them from a place where it's sort of uh, covered over with a blanket, unable to really communicate and connect into society, and really bring them to be all that God intended them to be as they go through a series of surgeries that they can really function normally, they can live life in this idea, I think, that we were talking about earlier does your body express who you are? In my mind, that baby born with the cleft lip and palate isn't, in fact, expressing who they are. And when the world looks at a child with a deformity with that, they look and that's what they see. And people's response is, what's wrong? And that's a beautiful person with all sorts of potential. And it's really amazingly satisfying to take that person and bring them with some... Um, labor on my part to a place where they do engage with the world and maybe the question that they get is, oh, that's a nice tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your tattoo. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. Great. Well, Tom, I think many, there are certain kinds of resonance here, Absolutely, aren't there? Yeah. yeah. So um, for those who, who don't know really very much about Ponsetti International or even the field of global health and, and public health, um, maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about what you have done during your career and why your passion has led you also to, to be part of Ponsetti International. <clears throat> uh, well, it's kind of a, a devious route, but I uh, came here uh, years ago as a physical therapy faculty member. Uh, and then um, progressively got uh, pulled into public health, which is now the College of Public Health. It wasn't at the time. And, uh, and then got involved more in international training activities, uh, trying to train public health professionals from Central Eastern Europe, some of the former socialist countries. That led to some training programs in, uh, in Africa. And then uh, five or six years ago, I uh, got reattached with the sort of the rehabilitation physical therapy side of, of, uh, of my background. I actually did a study with Dr. Ponsetti back in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. He was then doing his 20-year follow-up of patients he had treated in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I reconnected, and then um, the last uh, four or five years have been working uh, almost exclusively in, um, uh, with the Ponsetti Clubfoot project. Yeah, and so uh, we should describe Clubfoot. Funny, funny you should mention that I brought a little oh, prop along. <laughs> I apologize for the, to the listening audience, but um, yeah. this is an example of clubfoot. It's a, a, when a child is born with their foot uh, pointing down and turned in. Uh, this happens to about one in 1,000 live births uh, around the world. Uh, so about every three minutes there's a child born with this condition. About half of the children have both feet affected. Um, 
and it occurs in male subjects about twice as often as females. Uh, the exact cause is still a mystery. Um, there's no clear genetic influence. The problem is the foot is not only down and in, but it's stiff in that position. It doesn't really have the flexibility to get the foot flat on the floor. So the treatment that Dr. Ponsetti developed uh, over 60 years here at the University of Iowa uh, was not, to, not a surgical intervention, which, in which certainly a surgeon can go in and cut things and move things and sew them back together and it looks like a foot, but his 30-year follow-up showed that the long-term results are very bad. Uh, the joints get arthritic and so on. His genius was to develop a technique where you could progressively uh, change the angle of the foot by doing some stretching and manipulating uh, and put a cast on to hold the foot in a slightly corrected position. A week later, take the cast off, do it again, and, and progressively get the foot back flat on the floor. And typically, after four to six casts, uh, a foot that can be quite deviated, much more so than this little model I'm holding, um, can be made to be a normal-looking foot. The child then has to wear a little brace, some shoes with a bar that connects the two shoes when they sleep for a couple of years, actually, because the foot wants to go back into that position. Uh, it's not really a bony problem. It's a muscle imbalance problem. The muscles that pull the foot down and in are tight and, and less elastic. The muscles that would balance the foot are um, uh, lax. So you need to retrain those muscles and ligaments and tendons and realign the bones so it um, as Dr. Bonsetti would, would say, let the foot be like it wants to be, yeah. you know, the way it, a normal foot. So you mentioned that with this Bonsetti method, there is no surgery. This is, oh, this absolute, is, no, absolutely yeah. no surgery. And yeah. the beauty of this technique um, is that it is non-surgical. It's fairly low tech in mm -hmm. terms of it really just takes the skill of the, of the healthcare provider to do the manipulations in the appropriate order, again, which was Dr. Bonsetti's genius to figure that out. Um, and it takes um, you know, $60 worth of plaster wow. and some patience mm -hmm. and the cooperation of the parents. Um, but it really is a, a technique that can make a difference to the lives of about 200,000 children around the world every year um, and is really useful or applicable in almost any environment. There's no operating theater. There's no anesthesia. There's no, um, you know, not nearly the need for technical expertise. Because I think we could imagine that uh, a child who, that was never able to be treated for a club foot would have, uh, might live in poverty, might not be able to aid the mm -hmm. family in, in uh, bringing income in, uh, might sort of be an outcast in a, in yeah. a given. Well, you know, the, the, the result of, of what we call neglected or untreated club foot, and there are probably more than a million people around the world who have never been treated and have never had access to treatment, uh, is that they walk on the side of their foot. In more severe cases, they walk on the top of their foot. Um, you can imagine that leads to all sorts of problems with skin breakdown and ulcers and sores and, and infections and things. Plus, it seriously limits mobility. I mean, you can't walk very far. You have poor balance. You can't participate in normal childhood activities. As an adult, you find a hard time you know, getting employment. Yeah. In developing countries where 80% of these children are born, you can't collect firewood, you can't get water, you can't go to school. Um, and it's particularly troublesome for the uh, uh, female patients because they're often subject to abuse, you know, un unnecessary abuse, and, and they, they, they're not very successful in life yeah. compared to their peers, regardless of their social environment. So, so the story of Dr. Ponsetti's persistence with his method yeah. here is a good one because he, uh, there were many, 
his field yeah. who thought, that can't, how could this possibly be as good yeah. as a surgical repair that we've been doing for decades yeah. and decades? You can imagine an orthopedic surgeon who stands up at, a, at an orthopedic society meeting and says, don't do surgery. Um, it, mm -hmm. So he, he, fought, he fought a lot of battles to, to convince people to, to really use the, the non-surgical approach. Mm -hmm. And the real breakthrough in publicizing this technique actually were parents and the internet. Ah. Starting about 10 years ago, parents got on the internet and said, you know, would tell other parents, don't have your uh, child go to surgery, uh, find a doctor who knows how to do this, this non-invasive, simpler, more effective technique. Mm -hmm. And um, there are stories of, I've talked with some of the mothers who would get in a car and drive three hours to tell another mother, don't let your kid go to the hospital tomorrow morning to have surgery, because my kid had this technique and he's playing soccer and doing fine. So, ah. so there are lots of really uh, interesting stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I guess if I can, talk yeah. just very briefly about um, sort of the attitudes towards this disability and other disabilities in developing countries. Mm -hmm. um, I can contrast um, two countries in Africa where I've been recently, and in one of those countries, I won't mention any names, but in one of those countries, uh, there was a very accepting attitude about uh, this disability. So even the... the, the um, Older children and adults who are walking around like this seem to seem to have a lot of social support, and the attitude among the parents was if they had a child born with this deformity, they might not understand it, they might not have seen it before, but they had the uh, sort of the cultural attitude: let's go seek treatment and get this someplace. Somebody must be able to fix this. In an adjacent country, almost an adjacent country, um, was just the opposite attitude: if your child is born this way, keep them at home sort of hide them, the stigma associated. And when you ask that cultural group, you know, what's wrong here, they have all sorts of really interesting ideas about the causes of clubfoot. You know, it's a curse from my ancestors. It's a polio medication I took. It's, um, you know, they have, I went out uh, when I was pregnant and it was a full moon. I mean, there are a whole range of things that we've heard. And I think in those less educated um, cultures, tend to come up against these really troublesome attitudes mm -hmm. about deformity, disability, being different. Mm -hmm. well, one of the really wonderful things that's just happened in these, these last many months is that a couple of very big grants have just been made, have they not, to expand this uh, uh, more fully in various parts of the world? Yeah, we've been fortunate. I think the, the, the pendulum you know, from Dr. Ponsetti's days when no one appreciated his technique uh, it's now recognized by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, by the World Health Organization. People, there's enough scientific literature to prove the, that it's far superior to whatever else anyone is doing. And part of that is, uh, we, uh, because of that, we were able to get a, a recent grant from the USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, for a couple million dollars mm -hmm. uh, to demonstrate that, we could, uh, that this technique could be introduced into a number of different countries. And those countries are Nigeria, Peru, and Pakistan. And USAID said, uh, if you can introduce this technique in Pakistan and get every child in Pakistan treated with the Ponsetti technique, we can probably do it anywhere. Yeah. And no, no, you know, no, not trying to make fun of Pakistan, but given the political environment and what's going on. So we've been uh, just in the last few months gotten a, a start on this grant, and um, uh, we're very optimistic. There are now 20 some clinics in Nigeria who are, who are treating children in this way. And uh, four or five clinics now already in uh, Pakistan. 
to really do this properly. It's not just, okay, let's bend the foot, put some plaster on. Sure. It takes a, a little more sophistication, mm -hmm. but, but it is something that we, we also can train physiotherapists, uh, casting technicians, physician's assistant, nurse practitioners to, to do this technique. So it, it is useful in developing countries that, have, that lack the uh, physician manpower mm -hmm. to do this. Mm -hmm. It's just fantastic, and I, I'm so glad you could both talk to us a little bit about some of these things that are, that are possible and really helping people all over the world, not just the children, but the families who have such heartache when they see that, that their, their child you know, may have limited opportunities because of something that happened during birth. So, so anyway, thank you so much, Tom okay. Cook and Deb Kuckerinski. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks, Tom. And so now I would uh, like to welcome up our next guests. Uh, when I uh, opened tonight's program, I asked, uh, what do we do if we don't feel comfortable in our own skins? Well, the relationship between one's body and one's sexual and gender identity is the topic of this next segment. We have two incredible women with us here uh, on stage. They're physicians who are co-directors of the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, and Questioning Clinic at the UI Hospitals and Clinics. Uh, just next to me is Dr. Katie Mborek, a clinical assistant professor in family medicine, and I, as I mentioned, uh, co-director of the LGBTQ clinic. And next to her is Dr. Nicole Nisley, clinical professor of internal medicine and co-director of the LGBTQ clinic. So thank you both so much for being here this afternoon. Really an honor to be able to talk to you both about um, identity, our bodies, who we are, who we think we are, who we feel like we should be. And um, the clinic that, that you two are both heading up is, uh, I, I think, a really critical addition to the um, care here at UIHC. And uh, Nicole, you wrote a piece for the paper that I know many of us have read and enjoyed reading. And uh, it might be a good way for us to, to get into this whole discussion. You can perhaps mention how, how you as a physician with many, many years of experience treating many kinds of, of patients um, had some personal challenges in figuring out how to be the best physician you could be. So I think, uh, Joan, as I, as I wrote, it was a journey. Um, I think our lives as a physician from the time we leave medical school and, and go through residency to begin caring for patients at first, feeling worried, do I have all the skills that I need to have, and so on. As you age as a physician, you realize that it's a lifelong learning. It's, it's a journey, really, as it is. And um, I think the, the first thing that I learned is I, I felt that um, I needed to see the community, the community themselves from the, uh, in particular, the folks that identify as transgender or uh, gender nonconforming helped us create the clinic. And we asked them many questions, uh, questions about how to identify the patients in the medical records. So practical questions such as pronouns to use and uh, how can we do, do it in a way that the clinic feels welcoming? And what are the needs? What are you looking for when you go to a physician? And what kinds of things would you like us to teach our residents, our medical students, so I think it was an amazing learning experience that was very interconnected between the community and, and Katie and I trying to learn and trying to grow as physicians. And the thing that I noticed is, um, I think Deb was mentioning when someone comes with cleft palate, the, the only thing you see is that defect. And I think when you come in a society that is binary, that means it's male or female, and those are that, that's the only thing you see, the sort of the privilege of being binary. When you look at someone that identifies as gender nonconforming, you may miss that person. You may miss that beauty there because you're coming 
with this cookie cutter sort of vision of what someone's supposed to be. And that's the thing that I think to me um, happened is the transition of seeing the person in front of me and realizing that society is, in, in the binary world, is so much more limited. And when you begin to see people from many gender identities, not just you know transgender, genderqueer, non-binary, but there's so many different identities that people identify, that's who they are. And to begin to see that and, and, and begin to see that person, all the beauty that they bring, sometimes the very detailed way that they put makeup on or put clothes on and kind of notice all that beauty. Uh, I think as physicians, it's sort of like as with teachers, you notice each person in there and, and people come in sometimes an older patient that comes in very beautifully dressed for that you know, physical, for just to get their throat checks or their blood pressure checked and you notice that every detail was carefully thought out you begin to see the beauty, as Gigi was mentioning, it's all of its dimensions, not just the one cookie cutter beauty. So I think it was, it was a journey, learning and discovering and actually being able to see the person in front of me and begin to recognize the multiple dimensions of our world. And Katie, uh, why did you want to be involved in this clinic as well? Um, I identify as a lesbian, so I think that that was a really big part of wanting to be um, part of something like this because it's a community that I felt really passionate about taking care of as I was going through medical school, realizing that there was a real lack of any sort of training that medical students had um, for any sort of LGBT healthcare. So it was when I was a medical student that I first kind of felt like this was an important topic and it kind of evolved to become something that I felt like would be part of my passion as, as I was out practicing. Um, never would I have thought that this would actually end up being a, a clinic so early in my career. I just finished my residency in 2011. Nicole and I happened to be um, in the same place at, a, at an event put on by Trans Collaborations, which is this um, community university um, group of transgender students and community members. And they put on a symposium for medical providers, and we both stood up on different sides of the room and asked questions pertaining to how we can make our practices more welcoming for these folks. And afterwards, she came and she grabbed me and she said, I, I want to start this clinic. And I said, sure, I would love to start this clinic. Let's see if that happens. And then Nicole got on the phone and she called people. Then she emailed me back. She said, OK, we're going to start this clinic. <laughs> OK, well, <laughs> how wonderful is that? And so many, many, many months and, and, and meetings and hours and discussions later, um, we did open the clinic in October. And I think that an interesting part of all of this is that a lot of what our clinic does is kind of focused and targeted towards the transgender population mm -hmm. um, because they're really the, the folks who don't have access to care and who really have been shown to be the ones that are most discriminated um, in terms of structural barriers and social, it's, 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 you know, it's just from multifaceted ways that, that they don't get the same care that other folks do. Um, and as a lesbian, everyone kind of thinks, oh, well, you're a lesbian, so you know a lot about trans stuff. And, and, and there's nothing at all that prepared me for that. So this has really been an amazing experience for me as well because of just the generous giving of time and of knowledge that we have had the opportunity to partake in with members of this community who do identify as trans and who have helped us every step as every step of the way. So folks that, 
you know, might not have been my patients, folks that are my, my own personal patients have really, really taught both of us so much. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they have made the clinic what it is, and hopefully that is a really welcoming and affirming place for them mm -hmm. to come. Well, so for, for people who, who don't feel familiar with these terms, what are we talking about when we say transgender? Transgender people, transgender issues, or transgender healthcare? Yeah, so the verbiage is, is, is so important to this community, and I think that the interesting thing is that, um, you know, that it's really hard. It's like any label, and, and, and it's like what a lot of your other speakers have talked about. It's only something that each person can identify for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, so with that being said, I will kind of try to give you a broad definition of what that may look like, but of course each person may or may not mm -hmm. identify personally as that. Um, so gender nonconforming or really what we've been using kind of transgender now or, or trans, you might sometimes see in its written word, um, form trans with an asterisk following, which basically means trans and anything that would come, come after as very umbrella type terms to mean that someone's sex assigned at birth is not congruent with their gender identity. So the way that I usually talk about this is, you know, well, what is someone's sex assigned at birth? And so I deliver babies, and how is that usually defined? I deliver the baby, and I hold it up, and I say, oh, look, it's a boy, mm -hmm. or look, it's a girl, and it's, and it's typically, you know, based on someone's external genitalia. Not always, sometimes we do have to go, and figure out what someone's chromosomes are or what their own reproductive organs are. Um, but that's, that's typically how we assign someone's sex at birth. And for most folks, their sex assigned at birth is congruent with and it is equal to how they personally feel as a gendered person. And there are those people who feel like it's not equal and those would be transgender folks. So the opposite of that would be cisgender, which is a term that that Nicole used in her article. And cisgender simply means that someone's sex assigned at birth is congruent with their gender identity. Mm -hmm. So it's those kind of organic mm -hmm. chemistry mm -hmm. terms, if you're familiar with mm -hmm. those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little rusty on organic <laughs> chemistry. But, <laughs> but yeah, so um, one hears about surgeries for uh, people who, who are transgender. Are you, do, do you take on? Does the trans term come into play if someone has had surgery, or that's an identification, just if someone feels that the external appearance doesn't relate to the internal? So I think Katie gives this lecture to the medical students that goes over this terminology, which is lovely. She did a wonderful uh, grand rounds for the internal medicine physicians, and I think it was uh, an amazing experience to see physicians that have been there for a long time sort of having their jaws drop and thinking, I, I am learning so much, mm -hmm. I, I really something really unique. But I think, you know, gender identity and how you identify is, it's self-determined. Mm -hmm. Just like I might call you Joan, mm -hmm. or I might call you Mrs. Care, mm -hmm. or uh, Dr. Care, however you prefer. So your identity needs to be expressed. And so in other words, we ask the patient, how can I call you? What what is your gender identity? How do you, do you identify yourself? So you might, someone might say, I'm a woman. Someone might say, I'm a transgender woman. Somebody might say, I'm non-binary, meaning that they don't really feel that their identity relies on that male-female binary world. And so they might, as an example, um, be wearing a dress and, and sporting a beard at the same time, and they feel that that is their identity. And that is related to also their pronouns are used. We're, we're used to using the he and she um, 
some folks identify with different pronouns. And so asking the person, that is the respectful thing. Just mm -hmm. like I would ask you, how can I call you? Sometimes it's, it's the privilege of the binary world is I, I don't need to necessarily ask you to, to call you she, but I think if I kept calling you he or they, you might feel a little uncomfortable with that uh, because that's not how you identify. And I think that's how people, that's what people tell us. You know, the pronoun is very much who you are and you, if, if, whether I call you a woman or a, or a transgender woman depends on how you identify. So uh, when, when someone comes into your clinic, um, the, is the most important thing to have that, that sort of initial meeting where you, where you go over some of these things? Uh, now that you have a clinic and it's a named clinic, someone who's looking for health care who might previously not have had very good luck in finding the right physician, as you seem to mention before, they at least now know that there's a clinic that, that is hoping to address uh, some of the concerns of, of people who identify in this way. So they meet you. And uh, the first thing is to, to sort of do that patient history and so... In our audience here is our nurse who's sitting back there, Maria. Can you wave, Maria? <laughs> so Maria has a little script. She might say, hi, my name is Maria. I'm here to take your blood pressure and, and get you in. And my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, how can I call you and what are your pronouns? So that's the first step, oh, really? uh, basically, so that you can understand what, what, how can I call you. Yeah. And so we go from there. And um, so uh, how many patients would you say you have seen in this short time? How, how long has the clinic been open? Just a year since, or so? Since October. Since October, yeah. So it's a small clinic. Um, our clinic is only on Tuesday evenings, mm -hmm. and it's about three hours. Mm -hmm. uh, we all have to do evening clinics uh, in, in my practice, and so I just thought it would be a nice opportunity to create a smaller space, sort of an entry space, so that people feel like it's the opposite of what we've heard. We've heard that people feel unwelcome. There are barriers. People are saying, I don't know how to take care of you. Don't come here. So we wanted to do the opposite. We wanted to say a big, giant sign saying, you are welcome. This clinic is for you. We mm -hmm. really would love if you would come. Mm -hmm. So, But uh, because of the, the fact that it's only half a day, um, once a week, you know, so we, we see about four or five patients mm -hmm. per visit, mm -hmm. and we try to take time. A lot of the patients we're seeing are brand new to the university, meaning they're entirely new. You mentioned that they may have seen healthcare providers in the past, any of these people, where they didn't feel welcome or they didn't think these people understood their particular issues or whatever. Um, are they physical issues that are, are, are not being addressed? Or uh, I would think that there may be some people who would think that this is a psychological, um, yeah. mm, a transgender person needs to be addressed as though they have a psychological abnormality in some way. But the people who feel that you know, I'm perfectly fine, I'm perfectly healthy, this is me, I just want somebody to, to uh, treat me as, as myself. Uh, is, is this kind of yeah. the issue they've run yeah, into? So um, one of the big issues is, is that most of these people um, have a lack of health care insurance, oh. um, which is then going to uh, have a big, you know, it's going to really mm -hmm. be a problem for them to go find mm -hmm. health care um, and that is because in many places, you know, it is legal to fire them from their job and they can be discriminated from housing and, and all sorts of things. Um, and so, so, so that is one of the barriers that these folks do face. The other one is just that, um, you know, many transgender people do feel like they want to take hormones um, to tr transition and for their physical 
and spiritual and mm -hmm. emotional self to better kind of match. Mm -hmm. um, and there are not a lot of providers who feel like they are sufficiently trained to be able to provide hormones. Um, what I would say is, is uh, that it is my hope that as a physician who gets to lecture to the medical students, who gets to work with residents, that I really feel strongly that these are things that primary care doctors can do. In fact, we do them for cisgender people. We mm -hmm. give estrogen to mm -hmm. women. We give testosterone to men. Mm -hmm. We understand what the side effects of those medicines are. So I think that it's not so much a lack of knowledge um, as it is just kind of this perception that, oh, well, I've never been trained to do that, and I'm not really comfortable with, mm -hmm. with this population, and there's probably some sort of rules that maybe think that mm -hmm. this isn't really maybe, um, you know, supposed to be done or something. And the reality is that the American Medical, um, the AMA, the American Medical Association, which is probably one of the largest groups of of medical providers has actually made a statement seven years ago saying that transgender care in terms of hormones and surgeries and mental health is a medical necessity. It's not cosmetic. It's mm -hmm. not anything that's, that's you know, part of, well, this patient wants that. It's really mm -hmm. the same thing as giving insulin to someone who has diabetes. Yeah. It makes that big of an impact on outcomes. Mm -hmm. In many cases, I've had patients tell me that they don't feel that they would be here if it wasn't for the fact that they were able to take hormones for the last 20 years because they didn't feel like they could go on mm -hmm. in that manner. So in some cases, it can be life-saving, this therapy. So there is a medical necessity for it, and there are also organizations that are out there that give you guidelines in terms of how patients should be evaluated, um, and, and some of that does include mental health evaluations that may have to happen before then. Mm -hmm. um, but really, what we've tried to do is to be a source where, where patients can get this care in terms of hormones and can also find kind of a one-stop shop for a primary care home where we can help facilitate some of these referrals that they may need in terms of therapy or in terms of surgical care or other things like that. Yeah. Is this the only uh, such clinic, uh, LGBTQ clinic in Iowa, or are there others? Well, in an academic center. Yeah. So in an academic center, definitely. And, and probably one of the few, uh, if not, maybe there's just one more, in an academic center in the Midwest. But I wanted to get back to one thing you, you asked, Joan, which is um, whether or not this could be psychological and so on. Yeah. So again, the, the diagnostic manuals that we follow, the DSM, that looks at and gives classifications to mental illness, you, you see sort of a change over time where some time ago, you know, something maybe called transsexualism as a, as a disorder, moving to gender identity disorder. So in other words, your identity is a disorder to what is transitioned now to the most recent edition, switching to something called uh, gender dysphoria, meaning that you may be perfectly uh, so in other words, a patient comes to me and they want to transition because they identify uh, as a transgender man or transgender woman or non-binary and they feel like they would be congruent with who they are, that makes, makes them feel most comfortable, but they are not depressed, they're not anxious, they're perfectly well adapted, their family comes with them, they're a graduate student or you know, an undergrad uh, uh, overachieving and doing fine. This person does not have any disorder, they identify as a, a, a gender non-conforming person. But there may be someone else 
who, because they identify as a gender nonconforming person, they feel that that lack of congruence between what their body looks like right now and what they identify may cause them to be depressed mm -hmm. and anxious. And, you know, and so that's the gender dysphoria. And how we treat gender dysphoria is helping people transition. And as they transition and become congruent, that, that's resolved. And so again, what we're treating is not uh, the identity. We're mm -hmm. treating is a condition that is associated with that discrepancy. Mm -hmm. And that's what medical treatment is for. But not everybody, in fact, a lot of people that we're seeing are perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. They have no, they do not meet any, in, any mental health uh, diagnosis mm -hmm. criteria at mm -hmm. all. Well, there has been a dramatic change in, in the way um, uh, assessments are, are made within the professional community of, uh, you know, even uh, homosexuality. And if we look at the last mm -hmm. many years, there's hopefully now there's more, there are many changes happening in, in public opinion, I think, at least in the U.S. right now. But, but we've talked a lot about the transgen transgender and gender nonconforming uh, people who come to see you. What, what are the particular issues for uh, lesbian and, and uh, gay uh, people who are looking yeah. for a certain kind of health care. Yeah, and, and I think just for that reason that you mentioned, mm -hmm. that you know, back in 19, up until 1973, homosexuality was, mm -hmm. was in this, um, was it the DSM that Nicole was mentioning? Um, and, and now, you know, it's, it's, it's not in there. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I think gay and lesbian and bi patients feel very comfortable going to their local physician. Mm -hmm. So I think that we don't see quite as many or quite as high of a proportion of LGB patients because mm -hmm. of that, because mm -hmm. many of them think, oh, I live in Iowa City. I've been going to the same doctor for 20 years, and mm -hmm. I feel very, very welcome, and I feel very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And it is our you know, hope that in 10 years that, that trans people would say that same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but with that being said, I do think that there is a role in our clinic for those people who may not feel like they have a welcoming environment with their physician that they might not feel like they can be, you know, in a place where they're not judged or in a place where they can be completely open and that they know that they can come in to see us mm -hmm. and receive very, you know, yeah. non-judgmental welcoming care. I think it might also be possible, wouldn't it, for um, someone who has not really kind of come out to anyone in their own family perhaps and uh, to have a meeting with you folks so they could kind of Perhaps explore it, yeah, yeah, talk it through with someone yeah. who has... As a matter of fact, I did have a patient that walked in, didn't even call, and, and they said, uh, you know, that's the first person that they're telling uh, what they felt for a long time. But as Kitty was saying, I've had some patients that identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, and they, they came, one of them told me something very interesting. They said, you know, I'm, I love my primary care physician, but I just like having my own clinic. You know, so that just feels good. It feels like, you know, I can just talk about anything. I feel like that is, not, I don't have to have to feel strange or anything. This is what we're here for. Mm -hmm. I think what Kitty and I are trying to do is actually work ourselves out of our jobs. In other words, <laughs> to teach everybody so that, you know, there is not a need for an LGBTQ yeah, clinic. Yeah. Wow. Well, pleasure to meet both of you, to hear yeah, about this. Thank you so much, Nicole Nisley and Katie and Boric. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, John. Appreciate it.
pleasure now to uh, introduce our, our next guest, uh, Dr. Thomas Lawrence. Um, this final segment of Royal Canvas, we're going to focus on reconstructive, elective, and aesthetic surgeries. And uh, Dr. Lawrence is the Chief of Plastic Surgery at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Very good of you to find the time to be with us. Well, my pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, so you've heard the conversation to this point, and uh, uh, obviously I, you can identify with an awful lot of it. I'm sure you do some of the procedures that have, in mm -hmm. fact, been mentioned up till now. But could you reflect as a plastic surgeon on what you see as the connection people have between their inner selves and their outer appearance? Well, certainly I think there's a strong connection between people, what people perceive themselves or would like to, themselves to be and the way they feel. Um, you know, and I think we deal with it from a number of different perspectives. I mean, we do some work with individuals with congenital problems like clefts and palates and, and like other craniofacial abnormalities. And in that case, the goal is to take the individual with this uh, deformity and to sort of restore them to what is we perceive as being relatively normal in terms of human appearance. Sometimes we're dealing with post-traumatic deformities and things, people that were otherwise perfectly normal that unfortunately had an accident of some sort and had a significant injury to their face or their hands or some other part of their body and trying to restore the form and function of whatever was injured. Um, another component of what we do is working with people that uh, had cancer or some other medical problem that, that forced the loss or created a deformity in some part of their body and to try and recreate normal form and function in that regard. Um, sometimes it's changes that came through massive weight loss. I mean, that's become more and more of a thing. And, and uh, you know, bariatric surgery, as well as various other um, uh, regimens for losing weight have, have gained a lot of popularity, unfortunately by necessity, as obesity has become more and more popular, or more problematic. And um, so we deal with, with the, uh, <laughs> I guess it's popular and problematic, but it's, uh, uh, you know, dealing with, with secondary issues related to that yeah. Um, has been a, an increasing part of plastic surgeons' uh, uh, patient population across the country as well. I think, you know, certainly the part that you read about the most is the aesthetic part, um, which, you know, relates to trying to, in many cases, make people be what they feel like they would like to be, um, but perhaps are not quite there, you know, because of one issue or another uh, related to their body. Of course, sometimes also some of it is things that it's getting, taking an individual who likes very much the way they were before and trying to make it more like a, things yeah. used to be. Yeah. So, yeah. There's, so there's a wide variety of things that we work on. Yeah. And, and I, I suspect that when you have your consultations, particularly if it's an elective surgery, uh -huh. you're trying to figure out what, what this patient really is hoping to gain by this. Is it possible? Is it really reasonable? Um, one hears that certain people can become addicted to, you know, all the things we do to, to look younger. Um, what does a physician say to patients who come in for a consultation like that? Well, I think you're exactly right that that is a real challenge, is to try and, and ascertain that the individual has realistic expectations in terms of what they want to achieve. And um, 
also, I think to focus on what, you know, bring up what somebody else brought up before was, you know, to make sure it's something that they want for themselves. Uh, because generally, if somebody is trying to seek some sort of procedure of any sort, because somebody else thinks they should have it, or they think they are going to, by having this done, get a better job, or get a, get a better partner, or get something different than what they have now, is usually an unrealistic expectation. Mm -hmm. So you, you want to be able to assess to the best you can, the best way you can, that this is an individual that this is something they want themselves, that it's a, something that they can define, mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that you feel is achievable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that you know, some people come in with very vague expectations. You know, perhaps they want to look like that individual on the cover of Self magazine, but they don't look anything like that. I mean, you know that that just isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, you want somebody that's coming in that, you know, they, they can identify a specific part of their body, their nose, their breast, their abdomen, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and, and say, you know, this is what I don't like, and I would like it if it could be this way, and they have the other characteristics that make mm -hmm. that possible. I mean, for, you know, again, if somebody has very, very thick, thick skin, and, mm -hmm. and they come, they have a picture of a nose with very, you know, defined characteristics, you just can't make that nose mm -hmm. look like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and those individuals, you have to say that the goal that you have is not something that can really be achieved. Mm -hmm. So do you find yourself sometimes talking someone in a way out of, of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the, you know, we talk about the art and science of medicine. A lot of that's the art part, is to try and, and be able to assess the best way you can whether, uh, you know, somebody really does understand what they want and, and really you really feel like that if you can do what you can do surgically, mm -hmm. that they're going to be happy with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly we're not 100% successful, um, sure. but that's what we try to achieve. Mm -hmm. when, you've, uh, when you come into contact with someone who's, who's had perhaps a terrible disfigurement resulting from cancer, as you say, uh -huh. or maybe a car accident or mm -hmm. something like what just happened in Boston, a terribly traumatic situation, and... Uh, you know, as, as a professional, you're trying to figure out what the, what the best process is to, to mm -hmm. help this person improve. Um, what kind of toll does that take on, on yourself as a physician and, and on others? Because you're working with a family there mm -hmm. that is distraught, perhaps with a patient, if they're conscious enough, be terribly distraught, and they're going to be changed forever in some way. Uh, how do you address all of those issues? Well, I guess you just try and be as realis realistic as you can. Um, you know, in terms of, of saying what you can do and can't do and how in most cases it's going to be a process. But I think the other thing that we can do, and I think one of the things that caused me to choose to go into plastic surgery in the first place is you can provide hope. You know, you can say, well, you know, yes, we're dealing with a bad situation now, but we can do something to make it better. Mm -hmm. You know, you may not be able to make it perfect, you may not be able to make things just like they were before, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you can do a lot to make it better than what it is right now. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I guess that's the, in terms of the conversation, I think that's one of the, the most critical aspects of it is to emphasize that you know this isn't the end of the road. This, in mm -hmm. some ways, is the beginning of the road, mm -hmm. and you know the end point is going to be a lot better than where things are now. Right. 
uh, when, before the program started, we were talking a little bit about cleft lip and so on. Um, and you said, well, you know, it's plastic surgeons who, who do uh, much of that repair work. Do you take the patient from the very beginning, the, the point that Deb was describing just after the birth of the baby? Or is what a plastic surgeon in, in your, your field of surgery, um, do you do kind of the finish work, the sort of the final operation or two? Well, actually, what, I mean, what Deb is describing is, I mean, what she does is what a, you know, a lot of plastic surgeons do as well. I mean, it, it's similar. It, mm. It's something that actually now frequently starts prenatally. Uh, you know, as she was, she was describing, where, yeah. you know, we can make that diagnosis, can start counseling the patients as to the process that's required to, you know, fully rehabilitate an individual with that congenital defect. I mean, and, and as she pointed out, it, it does require multiple surgical procedures, speech therapy, uh, orthodontics. Uh, you know, it is, it is a, you know, a process to, mm -hmm. to fully uh, correct the problem that goes from you know, now before the baby was born until, you know, adulthood mm -hmm. or close to it. Well, uh, you mentioned bariatric surgery a little while ago, and, and uh, you know, there are those who might say, well, you know, just, just restrict your calorie intake or mm -hmm. whatever. But for, for those people where they, they need extra help and they go through various kinds of bariatric surgery, do, do you see great success with that? Um, well, certainly, I don't do the bariatric surgery myself, mm -hmm. but we see that people who have had that. Mm -hmm. And certainly for a lot of people, it's very successful. Again, you know, patient selection is a big part of, of whether it's going to be successful or not. And I think we have a very uh, uh, excellent program at the University of Iowa where they evaluate the patients preoperatively. They make sure that they are able to, res mm -hmm. you know, go on a diet that's effective, mm -hmm. lose some weight first just to demonstrate that they can uh, follow through mm -hmm. on that, on the diet restrictions that are required. And then if somebody is, shows that they're really dedicated, they have, they're, you have to re, be a certain amount overweight, mm -hmm. that then they have the procedure done. And the, the, you know, the surgery helps the individuals, but it doesn't in and of itself take care mm -hmm. of the problem. They do have to watch what they eat. Uh, it's just a little bit easier once you've had that surgery. And with that, many of them are able to lose hundreds mm -hmm. of pounds. Mm -hmm. The, the interesting thing that I find after that is that, you know, you would think if you took a group of people and they all lost 150 pounds or something like that, they'd all look pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. And they really look radically different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we were talking about the fact that there's a lot of different body types. Mm -hmm. And as there are different body types, as people lose weight, their body mm -hmm. changes differently. Mm -hmm. You know, and some people will have a significant amount of redundant tissue in their abdomen. Other people will have less, much less of that. Some will have a lot more in their legs. Mm -hmm. um, and some people, the skin magically seems to retract fairly well, and other mm -hmm. people, it just doesn't do it at all. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think yeah. some of those things occur for reasons that we don't entirely understand. Sure. But some of those things are things that you're able to, to really help with. You yeah, think. I mean, people, yeah. you know, as you can imagine, if you have a huge uh, flap of tissue hanging mm -hmm. down, mm -hmm. Uh, over your legs, it, it really gets in the way of function. They have mm -hmm. a lot of skin irritation, as you might imagine, mm -hmm. from rubbing. Uh, it limits them in terms of their ability to participate in physical activities. And, and for a lot of people also, it it's, uh, creates a lot of distress. I mean, they sort of feel like, you know, I've really bent over backwards, I've worked real hard, I've lost mm -hmm. all this weight, and now I look crummy and have all these additional mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, I think we can at least get them to where they thought they were going to get sure. with weight loss sure. alone in many cases. Sure. 
Well, you know, it is just astonishing to see the work that, that you and fellow doctors can do after something as, as horrifying and damaging as what happened to Gabby Giffords. And to see her now, the, you know, the reconstruction of, of her face is remarkable, I think. And uh, I mean, just in, in your lifetime, in your practicing years, the mm -hmm. techniques, the knowledge must have just grown tremendously. Well, I think, yeah, things have changed a lot. Um, I guess that's one thing about being old. But, uh, you <laughs> know, I mean, certainly way. in terms of, of facial trauma, when I started out, at, you know, our, our way of dealing with uh, fractured bones, our way of dealing with bones that we wanted to reposition was purely with wires, which was not particularly rigid fixation, and it was hard to keep the bones where you wanted them. Nowadays, we have plate systems which allow us to do that much more effectively mm -hmm. than we could. I mean, there's a lot of changes like that um, in a lot of fields. I mean, certainly. Nowadays, in terms of uh, breast reconstruction after breast cancer, mm -hmm. I mean, first off, the ablative procedures for cancer are changing a lot, mm -hmm. preserving a lot more skin, and in some cases now they're even able to preserve, you know, the nipple itself, and mm -hmm. and certainly that allows us to do a create a much more natural reconstruction mm -hmm. than we could before. I mean, it's very very satisfying. I mean, one of the things just even today, we had a patient come in and say. I think I look better than I did before. <laughs> uh, and you know, that, that was something that in the past would have never happened. Yeah, yeah. Is there one thing as we conclude, is there is there one person, one procedure you could mention that was that really just gave you such a feeling of uh, of hope for that person and a feeling of accomplishment for the work your team had been able to do? Um, I don't know, it's hard to point to just sure. one. I mean, I think we have you know, a lot of people that, you know, we feel like we've helped and that feel better because of what we've done. I think certainly the breast reconstruction group is a very, very satisfying group. I think the pediatric group is always, you know, it, and, and it's so interesting. It's in many cases, not so much of the child themselves as the family that, mm -hmm. that feels so much better about, you know, what you've been able to do. Um, you know, and I think that the, you know, what's also, I think, particularly exciting is things that are on the horizon. You know, and I think though we haven't done it here, seeing uh, some of the presentations that are becoming more and more prevalent on things like facial transplantation, yeah. where you can take people that are horribly mutilated and, and restore them to, to uh, at least an appearance that can make them functional mm -hmm. in society. Mm -hmm. I mean, and those sorts of things are just incredible that I, you know, I'm not sure I will ever do, but you know, hopefully, you know, within the next, next decade, become more and more commonplace as something we can offer to that, that patient population.